Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, as always, I'm your host, Matt Lasky. I am a cis white gay man, a Chicago resident, but most importantly, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining me today is Caitlin Williams. Caitlin, thank you for coming back to the show. We've had you on before and you decided to go at it a second time. So I'm, <laughs> I'm grateful for that. But we're not talking about like substance use or anything like that today. We are discussing seasonal affective disorder, otherwise known as SAD. So we were talking a little bit before we started. Well, okay, let, let, let me back up. Um, for those that don't know you, can you introduce yourself, <laughs> your role here at Howard Brown, and your pronouns, please? Sure. I'm Caitlin. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a licensed clinical, clinical psychologist, and I practice out of the 63rd Street location in Inglewood. Um, as part of the Recovering with Pride team, which is substance use services, we mm-hmm. do psychotherapy groups, individual, um, med-assisted treatment, harm reduction services like syringe exchange, Narcan, um, kind of like a whole slew of substance All use. All that good stuff. We have services. we have a few episodes about that uh, earlier on in our podcast's history. So uh, scroll down and find those if you're interested. Um, but like I said, we're talking um, still in the mental health vein, but uh, a little bit different um, about seasonal affective disorder. So um, in case you're unaware, even though I said it in the intro, uh, this podcast is based in Chicago. And Chicago, while being a lovely, beautiful thing all four seasons, has uh, a long and seemingly long and brutal <laughs> winter. Uh, and I've, I lived in the Midwest my whole life, so this is nothing new. Um, but for a lot of people, um, myself included, it's difficult uh, mentally, emotionally, obviously physically, uh, when winter is so long and so dark. And so I feel like enters seasonal affective disorder. So can you uh, give an overview of what seasonal affective disorder is? Sure. Um, Sort of, there's a couple different ways to look at it. Um, The sort of bare bones of it is that is a biochemical imbalance. So some kind of chemical imbalance in the brain in a response to the shorter daylight hours where we are having less sunlight during the winter. Okay. Um, Generally, we can say there's a genetic link to it. as is with other forms of depression and other mental health conditions, but it can certainly be impacted by environment. And there are ways that we can cope with it too to sort of lessen the impact um, for folks. Okay, so you classified it in like a very like concrete way of like a mental health condition. It's a chemical imbalance, which I feel like for probably a lot of people when they think about SAD, in part due to the fact that the acronym is SAD, they're just like, oh, you know, it's just like being a little bit bummed during the winter, uh, which like, it, I mean, it is that, right? But it's also a lot more. It's also that. so much more. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think sometimes when we categorize it in that way or think about it in that way, it can lead to minimizing the severity of the symptoms or the impact of the symptoms on a person's life. Right. So what we know about them is that the symptoms are cyclical. It's seasonal. That's the seasonal. And it tends to start in the fall and kind of pick up well, the very cold winter, as you mentioned, and then sort of tapers out in the spring as the sun is out more and the weather is warmer. That's typically the pattern we see for the majority of people with SAD. I will say there's a small percentage that actually experiences the reverse, hmm. but it's not as it's not the more commonly thought of right. form of SAD. Um, 
So the symptoms often resolve themselves with the change in the weather. Um, But typically what we see is kind of a group of symptoms. So generally feeling blah, which is not a clinical term, uh, but most people can relate to it. So feeling blah most days, all day, kind of sad, down. Uh, You might lose interest in things that used to be interesting to you. So like hobbies or seeing friends, Uh, your energy is low, it's hard to get out of bed. Uh, It also affects eating and sleeping patterns. So folks might be eating more, particularly of the of the carb variety, uh, in which case then we might see some weight gain during the winter months. Um, Other things that come and why we want to highlight it, and I'm glad we're highlighting it for the severity of it, is we do see feelings, increased feelings of hopelessness, um, not feeling worthy or guilty, or even thoughts of people wanting to hurt themselves and not wanting to live anymore. Um, So it's certainly more than just the quote-unquote winter blues that you kind of hear people... um, Either it feels minimizing or sort of dismissive. Right. It is a real uh, serious condition to get support around. Right. Um, yeah, because everything you just listed uh, reminds me exactly of that wonderful little like wipe erase uh, checklist that they give you when you go for a primary care provider. It was like, we're just going to screen you for depression real quick. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. I don't know if that's a standard thing, but uh, of like all the areas of your life it can impact uh, sleep, eating, work, relationship with friends and family, all of those things. So definitely definitely not just a you know i'm saying it but like an actual thing so so like beyond that and, and maybe regarding like the scope of it why is this something worth talking about yeah the fact of the matter is is this impacts a significant number of folks and in our country it's about five depending on the estimates about five to seven percent of the u.s population which is about 10 to 15 million people wow it's a lot of people um and of all of those people it's about 40 percent of the year that they're feeling that way so almost about half of their life right so that's a decent amount of time um it tends to start in young adulthood so like sort of onset is around 18 to 30 um and for folks who are on the younger end or on the older end of the age spectrum, they might experience those symptoms even more significantly. So they're sort of more at risk for the more severe side of it. Um, the other reason why it's important, and I'm glad we're talking about it at Howard Brown, also is that for folks who are in the community, uh, what we know is that in general, TGNC folks and the LGBTQ community experience mental health conditions at higher rates. Majority of that is due to minority stress, right? Pressures right. to conform to gender and sexual, um, you know. Yeah, archetype, stereotype, whatever word right. you want to yeah, use. Yeah, yeah, yeah whatever yeah, word the, you want to use. The norm, quote, unquote. Uh, minority stress, ill treatment. Um, you know, so in terms of stats on gender, and you and I touched upon this in the Suboxone podcast too, mm-hmm. is that um, unfortunately the research world has a way to go in sort of um, – mm researching the LGBTQ community, specifically around gender, trans, and non-binary folks. The stats just aren't there because a lot of the research has continued to be done through a gender binary lens. So there's my disclaimer, but I'll give you what we do know about it. Um, So what we know in terms of uh, when it comes to gender is that women more than men uh, tend to present with seasonal affective disorder, but in the cases where folks are men, their symptoms are more severe. Mm. Um, the other thing, and again, there aren't specific stats on trans and non-binary folks, but what I do think we want when we're working at Howard Brown and when we're talking to folks, um, to be thinking about sort of the additional stress 
on top of winter for that community, right, that sort of everybody's experiencing, but that, that this time of year tends to come with a lot of triggers um, around the holidays, right? So regarding um, family rejection, bullying, maybe memories of past loved ones who have died in the last year, uh, the coming out process, yeah. the quote unquote traditional family values that tend to come out around this time. Um, that have just long oppressed the community. So while some of the things I mentioned might be experienced by a lot of folks at some point, we know that the community experiences them at larger rates and more extremes. So I don't have specific stats on that, Mm -hmm. but we can uh, sort of infer from what we know is that folks in the community would be at a higher risk. Yeah, that makes perfect sense that like, obviously it affects everybody, but we know that the community that Howard Brown serves predominantly is at a way higher risk um, and and will be affected by this uh, at, at, at a bigger scale than, you know, the general population. Because, yeah, I mean, I've, th- that's another episode I'm kicking around and I think this kind of grew out of it is the, the conflict a lot of people in the queer community feel around that, not conflict, but stress a lot of people feel around the holidays, uh, especially queer people, because like you mentioned, you have the you know, traditional family Christmas hallmark that, you know, society wants us to have, but we may not have good a relationship with our family. We may not have a family. Um, there's religious conflict put in there and there, it, it's everything. So all of that. And if you want to like throw in housing insecurity or food insecurity on top of it, uh, it can be a lot. And and we know all of those things that the queer community is, is more at risk for. So um, when it when it comes to like, I'll say I don't know. I feel like especially now, um, mental health or just feelings of like, I won't say hopelessness because that has a more like medical connotation to it, but just exasperation, just feeling overwhelmed with everything. I feel like that is present in almost everybody at this point. So, how do you draw the line between just like? all of us doing our best to exist in that like general attitude. And then when does it start turning into, no, this is, could be seasonal affective disorder. This is something diagnosable. This is something you can seek treatment for, or is there no, is it just kind of a gray area? I don't know how that all works. Yeah. I mean, I guess my general, I'll do like a general thought to that response yeah. to that. And then I guess a more that specific probably one. applies to all mental health diagnoses. Yeah. I think, look, my view is like the more we can normalize mental health and wellness and getting support, uh, I'm a fan of, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't even think it it needs to get to a point where there's a quote unquote diagnosis. If you Mm. feel like you need support around something, Mm. that's what folks in this field are doing. We're here to support someone. No one's going to be turned away from a therapy office if they're like, well, I hear that you're struggling, but you're not struggling Struggling enough. enough. Mm. Um, You know, that's just like not a lens. Um, But also if your therapist does say that, I recommend maybe getting a new one, Switching. Okay. Um, but, but no good therapist is going to be like, I'm, I'm sorry, but I just, I need you to come back in two to three months, try to make your life worse. Yeah. And then we'll reassess. Um, so let me just normalize that. Like therapy is for everybody. Um, it's not equally accessible to everybody. That's mm-hmm. a whole nother conversation that you and I can have about barriers to access to care for, for different, different groups, but also know that support can come in all kinds of form. It doesn't just have to be therapy. It's peers, it's online, it's online communities, it's church for some folks, you know, so to really expand what support looks like. Um, 
So yeah, that's kind of my first spiel is like any, any kind of struggle, go get support, talk yeah. it out, yeah, live your life. Um, in terms of, I think what you were initially asking, which is sort of like, where's the line, um, clinically speaking, I guess. And there is an answer to that, which is that generally what we say with mental health conditions is that any sort of impact on your day-to-day living is usually the threshold um, work, school, relationships, like, is it impacting your day to day? Of course, the DSM-5, which is sort of the fancy book that we all use to diagnose, um, there's certain criteria for each condition, right? So someone would kind of go down those and tick them gotcha. down the line and you got to meet X number out of, you know, total of the list in order to meet the condition technically, mm-hmm. right? Um so I don't know if that answers your question. It does. No, I because I kind of meant it in two areas where like obviously clinical professionals know the criteria and are able to diagnose, but we find and I've seen with a lot of mental health um, disorders that people who maybe aren't experiencing, you know, what would be diagnosable, but maybe are experiencing little bits of it, like to claim that diagnosis. Like people will always be like, oh, I'm OCD. Uh, when they just like things organized. Um, and yes. so I see tendencies for people who like get bummed in the winter, but it's not going to affect their day to day. Be like, oh, m- my seasonal affective disorder, which it doesn't, you can't like invalidate what they're feeling, like you said, because those are still feelings and, and symptoms that they can get treated for. Uh, but it's the labeling of it that might invalidate someone who actually is having all of those, you know, more severe symptoms and, and treatments. You know, that, that because I, that's just sort of how I um, wanted to pose the question because I do see that happening a lot, especially with seasonal affective disorder. Yeah, people treat I, it think, very I think it's actually easily. a good, um, so I didn't hear the question that way, but that actually makes yeah, I didn't a pose lot it of, very well. No, yeah. you're, you're totally cool. I, I think there's a whole, there can probably be a whole other discussion about that, but it's actually <laughs> really important to really even just, have a discussion about deconstructing semantics around mental health Mm. um, and like who gets to claim what, you know, I think there is a a validity to that conversation, right? Because um, you like kind of in your example, you do hear that like, oh, that's my OCD or you'll see like, Mm. oh my God, I'm so ADHD. It's my ADD. And like those statements for folks who are not um, experiencing those conditions can be really harmful. Um, I, I, I do think that's different than like if you still feel like you need to get support around. Like you don't need to have a diagnosable condition to get that support, right? right? But like for sure, we don't want to be slinging around mental health conditions uh, without any intention or thought, because mm-hmm. that, that certainly down the line can cause people to feel more ostracized and it's stigmatized and harder for them to reach out right. for help, right? I think if you are if you are curious that you might have seasonal affective disorder, that that is reason enough to look more into it. Um, and it could be seasonal affective disorder. It could be something else, mm-hmm. you know, and you might just need somebody to help walk you through what you're experiencing to understand it. But there's a lot of co- controversy. There's pl- pros and cons to diagnoses. Um, sometimes the label is really helpful for folks because they're like, yes, this is it. There's a thing that exists. Mm-hmm. I feel so seen. And now I know how to treat it. And then other times, some people don't feel like they need the label, like they know their experience and they actually just want to feel better. Yeah. Right. Um, and at the end of the day, really what mental health professionals are doing is we are treating and su- supporting symptoms. Um, mm-hmm. The DSM and diagnoses, 
is that it's one tool. It's not like the end all be all. And at the end of the day, I'm not sitting across the table or whatever, wherever I am with when I'm working with someone recently, the computer screen <laughs> and thinking like, here's this person who's a diagnosis in front of me. Like, that's mm. not what I'm generally thinking when I'm doing that work. I'm thinking like, this is a person who's struggling with sadness. This is a person who can't right. get out of bed. This is a person who um, is struggling with, is, is feels like they're eating more than they want to be or should be in response to the darker, colder days. Um, and I'm not necessarily seeing it as a, as a diagnosis, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, you articulated that so well. Um, I, yeah, yeah, because it's like, it's like a slippery slope where you want to give language to people that were maybe looking to kind of put what they're feeling into a category, but you also want to make sure that the people who, you know, are in that category and have been diagnosed it don't feel invalidated. And some people... Yeah, like you said, some people just like to have, you know, uh, a one word, like I'm feeling, I have this, as opposed to I'm feeling sad, I don't, I, you know, I'm eating more, I'm, you know, they're not going to go list out all of their symptoms, because it's easier just to say whatever. Um, even if they're only feeling like one or two of those symptoms, they're just going to categorize it as that. So I feel like it's probably people's want to like, make their mental health palatable for people, if that makes sense. Like if I'm, you know... It's like the same thing where you, if you use a mental health day, you're not going to tell your boss necessarily like I'm feeling this and this and this and that's why I need to call off you to say I need a mental health day. And so people in conversation with one another aren't necessarily going to be like I feel this and this and this and this. They're just going to categorize it as something even if that categorization isn't the most accurate thing. I don't know. I'm kind of on a tangent now, but um yeah, it's 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 because I I also hear people doing it with like oh I was just disassociating like I feel like disassociation probably has a more like, a very specific clinical definition exactly to that. and it's like you were just lost in thought but okay but uh, here's here's why I love this example actually because um, a, a lot of my background is in substance use my other specialty one of my other specialties is in trauma and mm. dissociation is a um, sort of a symptom of, of yeah. trauma. We see that a lot in folks who've experienced that. Um, and I think it's actually a great example for the conversation we're having right oh, now good. about symptoms and diagnoses, right? So the way um, when thinking about diagnoses is we are talking about things on a spectrum and severity. Mm. So um, are we all sad some days? Uh, yes, everybody has experienced sadness, of course. We're talking about most days most days out of the week for most of the day. Mm. Um, so like with dissociation, I explained to my folks who are experiencing that just to kind of provide some education around it is dissociation is actually a skill uh, that all people mm. have the, the potential to do, yeah. trauma or not, right? So a common um, example I give to folks is like how many people have driven to work, you park into the parking lot and you've actually been like, Holy cow, I have no memory of how right. I just got to work. So that is dissociation. Runner's high, for people who run long distances, runner's high is a form of dissociation. Mm -hmm. That is not impacting their day-to-day. -day. And in right. fact, runner's high, I appreciate it when it comes on. It might because, be aiding. Yeah, like yeah. I, I get to not 
be acutely aware of how heavy my legs feel at mile eight, nine, 10, because right. like I am checked out. Mm. That's not negatively impacting my day to day. Right. And as long as I'm not blacking out every day driving and like, then, right. you know, it's not impacting my day. So what we see in trauma with dissociation is people that muscle to dissociate out of survival. Mm. Right. So the skill was sharpened during a traumatic event uh, because to be physically wholly present during a trauma is overwhelming to the psyche. So actually dissociation in that moment is a form of self-protection. So I explain this to people. This is your body and your mind actually keeping you safe mm -hmm. in that trauma. Where mm -hmm. it becomes uh, sort of a symptom of a larger diagnosable trauma condition is that you are utilizing automatically in most instances, people are, their body, their mind is utilizing that dis dissociative skill at times when they don't want to be and where it might actually be putting them in more danger, mm -hmm. right? So for example, or when they want to be really present, right? So when I'm working with someone, let's say they have sexual trauma, they might find that the trigger of being intimate, even with a, a partner they love and trust, they're body and mind might not actually be able to distinguish it from their trauma. So they actually start dissociating with their loving, trusted partner mm. and they don't want to, right? Yeah. They want to be present with their partner. They want to enjoy the intimate act. Um, they want to share in that. And the dissociation actually prevents that connection from both themselves, like their own enjoyment and experience, but also the connection to their partner or partners. Um, so that's what we're talking about in terms of like, on the spectrum and severity like gotcha. runner's high good cool i'll welcome that um from time to time dissociating every time i'm with a partner like that's impacting my relationships that's right. impacting my day-to-day -day. so that's the same way that we, we would look at diagnoses like a sad um you know what to what extent is it impacting your day-to-day -day? that's not to say if if you're feeling sad, but it's not having a huge impact that your sadness isn't still valid. But we wanna be really mindful about how we're using language, right? I also think there's a difference in using language to try to describe your experience um, versus using a mental health condition as sort of a quip or a mm. slang, you know, like, um, you know, you hear this with a lot, you know, like, oh, that, presentation was really schizophrenic. It was all over oh, the place, yeah. right? Or like this weather is really bipolar. Like that's right. what I, that's like kind of more flippant. Right. And that I, I can't hold a lot of space for that. I can hold space more for someone being like, I think it might be sad, but I'm not sure. Right. If that yeah, makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And once again, you laid that out so well. So, so it's not necessarily inaccurate when somebody says, you know, oh, I'm sorry. I was just associating like, if they're supposed to be paying attention to a presentation. However, it, we have to be mindful when we're saying that and when we're hearing other people say that, that though that exists on a scale of severity. And so we, we know that, you know, maybe they were, uh, but it probably doesn't affect their day-to-day -day and it's not on the same scale as other people who might be experiencing. Right. It's not out of, it's not an automatic response to your body being in a, in a state in of survival. State, yeah. Yeah. Um, like a coping, like trying to protect yourself. Right. It's just because maybe you thought the presentation was boring. Right. And checked out a little bit, you know, your day. Too. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little I, bit different. Yeah. I, I just think that this, uh, this is kind of a little sub podcast within the larger <laughs> podcast, but I think it's really important because 
if anything that COVID has made us aware of, it's how every single person can and probably does struggle with mental health to some degree. And so the way that we talk about it is huge um, because I say this on every podcast now uh, that the vocabulary that we use with with any condition, like, you know, it's it's a person living with HIV because it's World AIDS Day. It's not um, an HIV positive person. We don't refer to people as diagnoses. And so that changes the conversation in the way that we think about a condition. If we apply the same logic here and kind of change the way or at least be mindful of the way that we're talking about stuff, uh, it can kind of help advance uh, the conversation and, and the, the situation in uh, surrounding mental health. So thank you for laying that out. Um, I'm going to keep the train on the tracks here. Um, so, so seasonal affective disorder, I feel like has pretty recently come into public consciousness, especially when you think about it in relation to other, like more traditionally recognized mental health conditions, because I mean, obviously, depression and and anxiety have been or at least seems like they've been around uh or at least studied and known about for longer um where does sad fit in timeline wise and like where are we at with like research and treatment yeah that's a great question so i think certainly some mental health experiences have, are more common and have sort right. of been labeled for a long time right like your examples you used with depression um Seasonal affective disorder is certainly not new. It is sort of relatively new in terms of being named, right? But mm. I think what, part of what you might be noticing, and it's sort of being more recent, is that I think generally there's a social movement to sort of normalize mental health and wellness. Social media, I'm sure, mm. has a part in that. You could probably speak that. That's your expertise. <laughs> That's not mine. Um but I know enough uh, as a human in the world who uses social media that like it has certainly um, made the platform for normalizing conversations mm -hmm. about this much larger. Um, and I think a lot of younger folks are actually leading that movement, which is great and I love. So I think that's part of why you might be hearing it a lot more recently. And also it is just has been sort of specified in the, in the term of history of mental health much more recently. Mm. So the first time we do see it sort of specifically named in research is uh, 1984. Okay. Which is pretty recent. Yeah. Um, there was a study of folks who, what they were labeling as atypical depression at that time. So mm -hmm. that in increase in depressive symptoms during the winter or the cold months up north. And what they noticed in that group of participants is when they went south, they had a like sort of scaling back or remission or mitigation of their symptoms within the three to seven days of mm -hmm. going down south. And then what we saw is when that group came back, those participants came back up north, uh, their mental health deteriorated again in response to the weather. Mm -hmm. For those folks who were experiencing this atypical depression, some of them were assigned light, light therapy, which we'll talk about later mm -hmm. on as sort of like, well, maybe I have sad. What do I do now? Yeah. We'll talk about light therapy. But um, some of those participants were assigned light therapy and um, all of them showed a positive response within three to seven days of initiating light therapy. Um, so it was really this research uh, by somebody named Rosenthal, I should probably say their name, uh, it was important, uh, as recent as the 80s. Okay. That doesn't mean it. that's when it started. Obviously, that's when we just sort of noticed it and had a name for it. So it's certainly been around much longer. Yeah. Um, but that's a, that's about in research when we start seeing okay. it. Yeah, that, Yeah. because I'm sure with, with all medical conditions, or at least a lot of them, um, been around for a while, but it, yeah, it's... It, 
checks that we've just started actually naming the specific, um, you know, condition known as seasonal affective disorder. Yeah. And I think the other thing about it is so seasonal affective disorder isn't sort of like a freestanding, um, it's considered what we call a specifier. So think Mm -hmm. of that as sort of like a subtype of either major depression and you'd have a, like, um, with a seasonal pattern specifier on it or as a specifier in bipolar, um, disorder because bipolar for folks who aren't as familiar, sort of vacillate between there's a depression side and there's a manic side. So if the depression side has this sort of seasonal pattern, then it would be bipolar with a seasonal pattern. Gotcha. So if you're you're charting, you, you know, would chart like major depressive disorder, seasonal cross, like seasonal specification. Um, That's interesting. I never thought about that in relation to like bipolar disorder, are there other mental health conditions that fluctuate according to the seasons? That is a great question. I hadn't I thought of that. So it, I know it's out of like left field, but. Yeah, no, let me think about it. So I don't, um, I don't think I know enough about that to have a specific statement. What I will say is that I could see how the sort of indirectly seasons can impact other mental health conditions, right? Mm. So we just talked about trauma a little bit ago. Um, one thing that be very healing for folks who've experienced trauma is social connection. Mm. Also same with substance use. Let me just plug my program. Yeah. Um, that um, the opposite of, of uh, what, what's that? I love this quote by Johan Hari and I can't think of it right now, but that like the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. Oh. I love it. So anyways, I'm just gonna plug um, yeah. some other things, but um, Back to your question, I could see how, say, something like uh, a substance use disorder or a trauma disorder might also be impacted by seasons. Because if you think of winter, at least here in Chicago, and at least me, like I am less inclined to go out in the cold. I'm less inclined to see my friends or at least go, you know, be outside and stuff. You know, so I could see how other just mental health health in general, mental wellness could be impacted by the seasons. But Mm -hmm. um sort of because of these other factors that go along with the cold, gotcha. right? Like social stuff. And, yeah. Um, for sure. So, and of course, how you're sleeping and how you're eating, which is impact, which is part of SAD, right? Mm-hmm. Um, affects a ton of other mental health conditions, right. right? So if those things are impacted and you have something else, it makes sense to me. But in terms of like diagnostically, specific, the yeah. seasonal pattern specifier is with major depression and uh, bipolar disorders. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. We've, we've learned from a a plethora of episodes that health isn't just one thing. There's a lot of factors that go into it and the seasons do change a lot of factors of our life, whether it's, you know, in some areas, the produce that's available. So it can literally change the type of food you're eating, how often you eat your sleep habits, whether you see other people on a day-to-day basis, um, you know, there's, and that all is a big determinant in health overall. So there's probably a lot of conditions that you could see kind of fluctuate as the seasons, but, um, okay. So we, we have that specific specifier as it relates to depression, bipolar, but everything Mm -hmm. else is just kind of part of it. So, um, something I'm interested in, and I feel like is a predominant narrative when it comes to mental health is kind of getting, maybe not always an employer, but I feel like in a lot of cases, an employer to, validate that it's an actual condition that can affect an employee's performance. Uh, and I've, in my experience, desk jobs are a little bit more sympathetic of it, but I know for a lot of people in like the service industry and other places that, um, you know, 
uh, if, if a worker is experiencing difficulties related to mental health, it's always kind of just like shrugged off. And I feel like if there is a condition that will be shrugged off by management, it feels like it would be seasonal affective disorder. Because like we've mentioned a little bit, the narrative in a lot of cultures that it's just kind of like, you know, not winter blues. Right. Winter blues. So I guess it's a two part question of like, why do you think that narrative exists and how do we get people to take it seriously? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I think the narrative exists and I think it's not just specific to seasonal affective. Of course, I think, um, you know, some, some places of employment, uh, aren't inclined to take that. The culture of the workspace maybe doesn't take mental health and wellness um, seriously. Or what I see more common than that is workplaces saying, oh, we love mental health and wellness. Um, Mm. Like do yoga. And you're like, wait, actually though, like I need a day off. They're like, no, no, not like, not like that. We don't mean like we're bringing somebody in to give you a 20 minute massage. And it's like, well, (laughs) you're like, wait, actually like I need a day. Um, you know, so I see that a lot, um, where it's like, yeah, mental wellness, but like, no, no, not like that. So, um, my first, my first general statement would be like, hopefully everybody can land somewhere where, uh, the work culture, um, really has a good understanding of mental health and wellness and takes those kinds of statements really seriously and really um, values their staff and is invested in that, right? Because uh, as a manager, I know that when my staff are feeling better, uh, they are doing better work, right? Yeah. The other thing the other thing that I think is important that's sort of like, uh, like the unsaid thing, right? Is like a workplace culture needs to be safe enough for someone to even come forward and be like, mm. I'm struggling with something to their manager, right? So look for places and spaces where you feel valued and where you feel safe um, to go to your manager. Um, that would be sort of one thought. The other, like sort of more, uh, I don't know, employment law, legalese, HR response is that uh, seasonal affective disorder subtype of, you know, the depression is, or bipolar, is considered a disability in the workplace. Mm. Um, So, and again, this requires like access to a doctor to bring the, you know, so again, that's part of that other conversation. But in a perfect world, one would be able to have a, uh, obtain a document from a primary care provider or therapist or someone who's qualified to do so, stating that they have whatever mental health condition it is. and according to whatever process at your workplace, you bring it to manager, bring it HR, um, and then engage in what some states call an interactive process, which is a one-on-one conversation or a smaller conversation um, with folks around what your doctor, therapist, or provider is recommending, and then how the workspace is going to accommodate that. Gotcha. So examples of workplace accommodations that I can sort of think of off the top of my head for something like SAD might be... Um, can I have a desk space next to a window, mm. right? If there's if there's some variety in sort of where my cubicle goes, can I get the one near a window, right? Where I have access to more sunlight. Another accommodation might be adjustment in your work hours. Um, another one might be, can your work buy you a light therapy lamp for your desk? Um, so again, those are conversations, uh, depending on the type of job and, you know, other things, some, yeah. some accommodations are considered reasonable and others are not, that's outside of the scope of my expertise, but that would sort of be the process for gotcha. it is that, um, 
you would work with HR or your management around a discussion about reasonable accommodations in the workplace. That's excellent advice. And for some reason, didn't cross my mind that like, this is something that is on your chart if you see a doctor regularly for it and you can use that um, or a letter from your doctor to, you know, hopefully gain some leverage and, and, and work with your employer to, to find a solution. So, um, yeah, that, 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 that's a great point. Um, we've mentioned it before, but what are, what, what are, what is treatment for this look like? Yeah. So it's multifaceted. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of those things where I think you can look like nobody experiences even the same mental health condition, exactly the same. So like get in where you fit in, try some things out and see what works for you. Um, so it might just be a little trial and error, but generally we see um, treatments or coping kind of fall into a couple of the different categories. One of them, which I've mentioned a couple of times, which is around sunlight. Um, that can be the real sun outside, mm-hmm. but also what we know about artificial lights is that they do uh, sort of mimic the sun's rays and can generate vitamin D in, the, in a similar way to the sun. Um, there's some specifications around the lamp. It has to be over like 10,000 lux. Like it can't just be any kind of light. Right. Like you need a certain, certain kind of strength, right? But one of them is light therapy. If you are, are not able to get outside, um, another one could be a vitamin D supplement. Check with your doctor, again, outside my scope. Um, also getting outside, even if it's cloudy and overcast, you can still get the benefits of the sun's rays actually through that. Um, so that's also helpful just in terms of getting sunlight. And like we talked about with the workplace accommodation, open your, uh, you know, get your window, get the sunlight through the window, open your curtains, do all that. So anything to get sunlight, artificial or real, is great. Um, Another piece in terms of mitigating symptoms is getting active. Mm. And this doesn't have to be like running a marathon on your treadmill. Uh, Studies show that even something as quick as 15 to 20 minutes, um, moving your body around, you can dance, you can jump around. Um, stretch is going to have positive effects in terms of your symptoms. It's going to boost your mood. It's going to boost your energy. Um, this can even be if your workout is outside. Uh, and in fact, I dug into this a little bit just for this podcast because I was curious. And what I discovered is that working or moving your body outside is actually more beneficial to your mental health and wellness than doing it during the warm months or when it's warmer out. Um, apparently there's a neurotransmitter that gets triggered during the cold, um, which makes sense. It sort of like triggers alertness and motivation. Um, it shows boosts in your immune system, uh, lower inflammation, and a 30% increase in your calorie burn wow. if it's cold out. So brave the cold. Brave the cold, move your body in the cold. But if you can't move your body in the cold, move oh, your body yeah, inside. Yeah, That's fine as too. As you can, as you're able. Um, so yeah, but winter exercise is actually pretty good. Um, other things are around support, which I, I mentioned about, you know, the importance of human connection, right? So um, you could do therapy, you could do support groups, uh, space to talk it out, get some coping, um, but also reach out to your family and friends. Uh, the urge to sort of isolate and hibernate, if you will, yeah. during this is pretty strong. So reach out to friends, family, even if that's only over the phone, that's better than nothing. Um, another thing around support is just getting like an accountability buddy to check in on you. Like, hey, did you move your body? Are you meeting your goals? How's your mental health today? Um, so that, that's kind of all in the realm of support. Some other things have to do with your diet. So I mentioned that eating can become uh, difficult if you're experiencing seasonal affective disorder. So make it easier. So pre-prep meals, um, mm. smoothies, soups that can be frozen, right? Yeah. And you take them out and they'll last for a long time. Uh, aromatherapy has been found to have some effectiveness. Mm. Um, we talked about the importance of sleep. 
if you're pretty intentional about your routine, you can have positive effects in your seasonal affective symptoms. So what I mean by that is go to bed earlier when wake up earlier because then you're maximi- maximizing the amount of time that you're awake mm-hmm. during the day yeah. that the sun is out. So you have to tweak your sleep schedule a little bit. Um, and the other thing, of course, is antidepressants medication, right? Uh, which that, again, that's a speak, speak to your doctor, um, get some more information around that. For some folks, there's some hesitancy there. So medication is not the end-all be-all. It is just one option of the many I listed. Yeah. Um, the other thing is to remind yourself that sad is you will cycle through it. Mm. Um, so sort of reminding yourself, um, this isn't forever. It isn't forever. Right. Um, but I say that with sort of like an asterisk, right. Cause I think I don't want to, I don't want to minimize that. And certainly like, just because it's not forever, that doesn't mean it's not going to cycle through. Right. By and that's definition. Not, not a reason to not treat it right now. Right. Yeah. Like by definition, it's going to cycle through again mm-hmm. in like another half a year, basically. Um, but those are generally just some pointers yeah. that folks can do to, to either manage or um, mitigate the symptoms of yeah. SAD. I feel like we're, um, as a society, pretty quick to jump on like quick fixes for things and um, not to view health conditions or treating health condition- conditions as like a holistic effort. Um, so I feel like uh, SAD is kind of the primary example of like, there's a lot of little steps you can take to put in that will maybe not like treat it completely, but to 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 help mitigate all of those negative symptoms that you might be feeling because I feel like sometimes with uh, depression or whatever the case may be, it's easy to just be like antidepressants, like hit the med button and then, you know, we'll pretend that's fine. But um, all of those steps that you mentioned seem kind of like common sense, even if you're not experiencing sad, um, just to make the most out of winter because I... This is kind of a segue into my next question because I've seen the narrative, not in the narrative, but like the take online that if you look at nature, all of nature cycles and then, you know, what is being produced by nature is very different according to the season. Um, if you're a mammal, most mammals don't do a whole ton during the winter and humans are mammals. So is there modifications that, or, or um, you know, adjusting of goals that might need or could possibly happen related to that, related to how we view productivity during the winter, related to how we, you know, view or adjust priorities. Because, yeah, if we take our cue from nature, we should all be sleeping, like, all day. <laughs> I don't know. We're not obviously, like, bears, but right. it did make me think, like, hmm, like, our, is the way that we view productivity and what we should be doing during the winter maybe a little askew? And maybe this is kind of a tangent or beyond the scope of what you do, but it was interesting. I like the question. I appreciate it. Um, My initial thought is like humans are so much more than their productivity, Um, you know, and uh, do what you got to do to take care of yourself. Right. But um, there, there are, you know, every now and then when you talk about sad, you are, you do hear people be like, was that just like repressed hibernation? Right. You know, or is it some like residual evolutionary survival response? Um, and certainly there is merit, like a survival kind of component to hibernation for other kinds of animals, bears, et cetera. A lot of animals do it. Um, you know, and sort of the likelihood of reproductive success increasing for folks, folks, animals, <laughs> so impulsive yeah, 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 yeah. Um, for animals that engage in sort of like a hibernation, like a seasonal, um, mm-hmm. kind of cycle. So I, there's... Again, that's also, I'm not an animal expert, but like, yeah, there's a, 
there's a survival component for animals. It makes more sense to be, um, for both mothers and babies to be having their babies in the spring for survival mm. purposes. Um, but I still appreciate, I still appreciate the question and sort of the evolutionary perspective. Um, but of course there's much more to humanness than, um, like our ability to, to procreate. We sort of like evolved beyond that. Right. Um, but like for sure, I think while it applies to animals, um, I would sort of ca caution sort of ap applying it to humans. Um, right, that's just, a big jump. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit, yeah. I mean, there might be some evolutionary basis to it as there is with a, a lot of things that humans do. Um, but it's a little overly simplistic just because we have, um, we, we, we are... Technically mammals <laughs> doesn't mean we have almost anything in common with yeah mammals, so i think so. while the while the sort of underpinnings of it might be based in survival i think everybody that does this kind of work would say in the modern era this no. would be considered like a like not an advantage evolutionarily right, right. we want to get some support around it and get you treated right for it. okay yeah I, I just it was a fun thought to think about but yeah obviously like nature's goal first and foremost is to procreate so it makes sense for them to like sleep and put on fat and they also like literally live outdoors right uh and we can procreate whatever because we live indoors and we also want other things beyond that so right. um but if, if you're fair. an animal that's probably a major goal is procreation right. so i could like appreciate the value in a hibernation situation right, right, right. uh and uh yeah, it might be like an evolutionary kind of leftover. And maybe for sure. if it helps you like lessen the stigma towards yourself in some small way to be like, well, bears sleep a little bit, so I shouldn't be ashamed of feeling a little sad as a human during the winter, you know. And if that helps you recognize your feelings or legitimize mm -hmm. them, fine. But, you know, I, I, yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I think it all comes down to like, how do you as an individual experience this mm. thing, right? So like for me, I gotta tell you, I love snuggling up with a heavy warm blanket, mm. some really trash reality TV or like murder show documentary with a hot cup of tea. For me, that feels like that feels really good. Even if like I'm staying in, mm -hmm. it's dark out. Actually love that. Sometimes it's like dark or snowing or rainy. Like for me, if that, like if for me, it feels good for the next person next to me, it might, not right yeah. so really pay attention it's good to sort of communicate and listen to people on social media or your friends or like books or whatever kind of media you're into and also trust that you know yourself that if it doesn't feel good for you there's no harm in being curious about that and checking in with either a professional or a friend or whatever because it's not everybody's going to be the same but yeah but yeah, snuggling and isolating under, you know, every now and then. And again, is it impacting my day to day? Mm. That's sort of the question. Yeah, that's a question to keep in mind. I love that. Um, we're reaching our time, but to, to kind of put a bow on this episode, uh, if you could have people walk away with one, you know, overarching theme or concept as it relates to SAD and, and the treatment of it and kind of public perception, uh, what would it be? Yeah, I guess to just say a little bit, I guess to sort of repeat what I just said, which is like, we're all different. Mm. Um, what works for me might not work for you or your friend or your sister or whoever. Um, so give yourself some grace while you move through the challenges of trying to figure it out. Um, make small changes. You know, I listed a whole bunch of things. You don't need to overhaul your life in 24 mm -hmm. hours. Like 
maybe pick a category or pick a thing, try to stick with it. Um, but I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of self-compassion. Um, so if you are struggling, also remember that you are still deserving of, of self-compassion through your struggle. Um, you know, so that would be sort of my period yeah. on the end of this podcast. Um, and that asking for help and reaching out is an act of courage. Mm. Um, so I'd say that. I also have like some numbers for suicide or the trans lifeline too, yeah. or if it's easier to put those on the Yeah, I can put them in the description. Um, but yeah, those are sort of easier resources on, you know, just pick up your phone and call if right. it might be more difficult to connect in a different way with other people or other gotcha. face -to -face forms of or whatever. Yeah. Okay. That is, yeah, that's a great summary because I feel like we always feel the impulse uh, for comparison um, in all aspects of our life, but you know, our, our Productivity and mental health um, is a, a big, you know, part of that comparison. Um, and so I feel like it's always easy if you're struggling with something to look at, you know, the internet, which is never good, uh, especially if you're struggling with comparing yourself to somebody else and be like, oh, they're doing that and that and that, and I'm struggling to do shower in the morning or whatever it might be. Um, and so, yeah, everybody's different. It's reaching out and asking for help is a huge act of courage and there are resources out there and, and, and little things we can do. So. The small steps matter. If yeah. all you did today was get out of bed and brush your teeth, sometimes sometimes that's our the peak of our day. Yeah, it's the, for some reason that meme of Oprah being like, well, hello, let's celebrate that. Like, yes. <laughs> even if it's a little thing, let's do it. I love that. Um, we'll wrap it there, but Caitlin, thank you so much for, for your time again. Um, maybe we'll shoot for around three on a different topic because you are a wealth of knowledge on a lot of different things. So, um, but if not now, thank you. Thank you for everything. So thanks for having me. And that has been our episode with Caitlin Williams about seasonal affective disorder. If you are interested in the resources that we mentioned during the show or the hotlines, I'm going to put those in the description below, um, or you can go to www.howardbrown.org uh, to learn more about the resources that we offer here in Chicago. Thanks for listening.